Buster. Buster Keaton, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Andy Moore, and this is Andy's Treasure Trove, where I share with you some of my favorite people, places, and ideas in the worlds of culture, art, and fun. In this episode of Andy's Treasure Trove, you'll hear a very interesting conversation I had with Rusty Frank, the author of a book called Tap, The Greatest Tap Dance Stars and Their Stories, 1900 to 1955. Rusty interviewed over 30 tap dance legends for this book, including Shirley Temple, Ruby Keeler, Fayard Nicholas of the Nicholas Brothers, Gene Nelson, Donald O'Connor, Ann Miller, and many, many others. It's a deep dive into pop culture of the first half of the 20th century, and a close-up view into a cherished American dance form that swept the globe and is still popular worldwide. In addition to being a writer, dance historian, and preservationist, Rusty is an accomplished professional dancer specializing in tap and the Lindy Hop. She teaches dance online and at her school called Lindy by the Sea. She produces dance shows and she has a dance club called Rusty's Rhythm Club in Los Angeles. We began this interview after a walk through El Segundo in Los Angeles where Rusty lives. I also want to say something about El Segundo, because this is being recorded in a place that, even though I was born and raised in Los Angeles, I've never been to El Segundo. And I find that it's a charming corner of the city that you discovered well before I did, Rusty Frank. Yes, yeah, I did. Uh, I had some friends who lived here, and they recommended that it might be a nice place for me to live. That it's a small, they knew I like small town living, and I, but I needed to live in LA, so it was... It was just a perfect option for me because it really is small town living here. They call it the town that time forgot. It's also known as Mayberry by the Sea. It's adorable and it's right by the ocean. So I was going to say it's like a little village by the sea. It has that total village, small town feel. It's got it. We have our own fire department, our own police force, and our own school system. And there's only 16,000 people who live here, which for LA is quite small. So, but we have all the amenities of LA. So, if you like theater, hike, and hiking, there's it's all right, right here, in Los Angeles County. And right before we arrived in El Segundo, we drove along the coast, um, between the airport and the ocean, and I thought we would see planes taking off. But what we saw were old streets that must have led to old houses that have been all chain-linked, fenced off, because that's where the planes go over. And well, I guess when, they... When they built LAX, they bought out all those homes that were there in Playa del Rey. So they bought that whole... Everybody had to move because that's where the planes were going to be going over. So that it, it is a really kind of interesting, evocative, haunting, because you see the streets. They're all cracked and grass going through it. And there's these old palm trees and... I always, I always wish they could open it up as a parkland, but I think just for security, they need to keep it cordoned off. But it's a, a nice little wildlife refuge. There's always hawks there, and there's burrowing owls, and and the El Segundo blue butterfly. Mm. Yeah. Well, are you allowed? Uh, is there a way in there, or you can only look at it from the outside? There's no way in. Yeah. <laughs> there's no way in. <laughs> no, they have it. They have it sealed off. That's what makes it all the more appealing to want to explore. Yeah. It's quite nice to see an open space with no people on it. That's nice. When I drive by and you see that open land, it's nice. Yeah. Well, El Segundo's uh, very pleasant and a nice discovery. You're a rediscovery. You and I met something like 45 years ago, briefly, and you might not even remember me uh, because 
I was with a friend who was taking a tap dance class from you at UC Santa Cruz, and I just went along. And uh, not only did I meet you there, but I met someone who ended up being very important in my life, who was another one of your students, Tom Lehrer. That's right. And you, did you know Tom before that class? I, I knew Tom, well, I, was, I had been a big fan of Tom's. Uh, growing up, our family had his records, and we knew them all by heart. And he was just part of our home life, those comedy records. And then, and then when I went to Santa Cruz, I had heard through the grapevine that he was there and had wanted to meet him. And it, it all became possible because I was at the same college he was at. But really what happened was there was a tap class that was being taught that he and some other friends of mine were in. And so I went over, even though I didn't need a beginner class at that point, I was, not that I was sensational, but I didn't need a beginner class anymore. I'd been tap dancing since I was six and had an extraordinary teacher. So I, but I thought, yeah, I'll go over and take a look. Well, when I went over, the teacher didn't show up that day. So somebody kind of poked me in the ribs and said, well, why don't you teach the class? And so for that one day I taught it just, and then, then I think it was, it might have been Tom and a couple other people said, would you consider doing a class at Cowell? Because the UC Santa Cruz was divided up in colleges and the college where this tap class was, was all the way over on the other side of the campus. And it was easily a half hour walk over there, if not further. And so I thought, oh, that'll be fun. And so it was a nice little, just a small class with Tom and a few other people. And we, we just had a good time. Mm-hmm. It was really enjoyable. And I, I'm a big believer in small is beautiful. So I enjoyed a small class versus that other one. I, I seem to remember just this room full of people, like 100 people or something, which was not, uh, if you've ever been in a room with tap dancers, four is enough. <laughs> for me (laughs) clattering away practicing their shuffle ball change yeah so so yeah that was really fun and then it Tom and I found that we were real kindred spirits that we just loved so much in common he his first big love is the Broadway musicals and mine was Hollywood musicals and it makes a lot of sense because he was raised on the east coast and I was raised right here in Hollywood so I in the Hollywood area and so we complimented each other really well and so we always had a lot to talk about and we both loved tap dancing and so it was always very jolly and fun yeah who was the teacher whose class you pirated away to the other side of campus <laughs> i have no i have no idea whose class that was i i don't know if i ever even met them i don't know if it was a he or she or what because the day i went over that was i think i went once or twice i'm not i don't remember anything and thankfully i didn't pirate i just there was I, literally, I think there were just three students from Cowell mm-hmm. who I was already friends with that we ended up doing that class there. Yeah. I didn't mean to cast aspersions. <laughs> we were just so grateful not to have to go all the way across campus. Um, uh, but yeah, that was so much fun. And and Tom also was part of this Cowell College. We called it the Round Table. And it was just this one round table in the dining room where several professors and just a handful of students not even a handful maybe two or three of us got to sit and that was just amazing every day at lunch it was Tom and Mary Holmes and Charles Selberg so Mary Holmes was the art history teacher Charles Selberg was the fencing master and so this oh god just the to be there and just to get to soak that in with these brilliant minds and they were real diverse one from another but they all just loved loved uh being together and If I could go back in time, I'd love to go back to that table for lunch. 
Did you call it the something round table? We it round table. Just we the did. Round table. Yeah, because there was the Dorothy Parker round table at the Algonquin, like Dorothy Parker and many, many others at the Algonquin. So I think we. I, I, now I even wonder if I just called it that or if other people called it that too. I'll have to go. I'll have to ask somebody. But that's what we called it. It was a round table. And <laughs> all the other tables in the dining room were, were rectangular. Well, you took advantage of something in college that some students don't, which is making friends with the professors. Isn't that interesting? And, and I want to say that they are still my friends. Of all my college friends, I would say that it's equal number, students and professors. As a young child, nine or 10, I took a few weeks of tap classes. So I had very little experience in tap, but I really enjoy watching it. And I was always and still am a big fan of Shirley Temple, and I understand she was inspirational to you. I think so many children, she's the gateway drug for, for many things, not just tap dancing, but also old movies, the old black and white movies, musicals. Uh, fashion, cars, all that, that whole Art Deco era, because it's its one of the few things that um, little kids can see and relate to right away, because it's another child. And those movies were on regularly when I was a kid, so I watched them religiously. And so she was what, uh, I, I was six when I started watching her movies, and I didn't know you could still do that. I didn't know you could still tap dance. Like, was it a thing you did? Or I was just watching these movies. And one day I was out front, of our house and my next door neighbor Cindy Catlin came home and from her tap class and showed me a shuffle and I did the shuffle she showed me how to do it I did it and I ran into the house and I said mom I want to take tap class because now I understood that you could actually go take classes and so she signed me up and and there you go so it was fantastic and I started like with a little mom and pop school where I learned tap ballet and tumbling they did 15 minutes of each <laughs> and I'd only wanted to do the tap so she was able eventually to find another place for me to go that was just a tap lesson with John Zerby who had been a vaudevillian and was a really really lovely wonderful beloved teacher here in the San Fernando Valley and all the tap dancers from that era knew his name and then his uh, wife, Katie Zerby, was, he was in his 50s and his, his wife was a lot younger. And they were just, just the, I can't even tell you, they, people could not be lovelier than they were. They're so, uh, it was a great environment for, you know, the, imagine this kid who at that time loved old movies and in the midst of the hippie era and rock and roll. It was a little bit of a, a jolly misfit. So this was a, a, such a nice place to go to once a week for classes and then when I was a teenager uh, we found another school that was closer to my house and the teacher was Louis Dupron who is a legend in the world of tap Uh, he was out here in Hollywood in the 30s 40s 50s 60s and first had a, a small career on film as a dancer and then became a choreographer and his most notable contribution I would say is Donald O'Connor because he was he was became Donald O'Connor's I guess you would say teacher and choreographer, everything for for decades, and so he had big successful career in Hollywood for all the way through television variety shows and things, and uh, he also had a little he had two schools and one was right near where I lived. So that's I just it was literally my mom either having a friend say or looking in the phone book, but there I was suddenly at this 
and me not having a clue, just knew this guy was great. And then I started looking at the pictures on the wall, Ginger Rogers, dear Louie, thanks for everything. You're the greatest, you know, <laughs> all these, like, wait a second, who is this guy? <laughs> Pre-internet trying to figure it all out. Yeah. Well, when you mentioned Donald O'Connor, it seems to me that I read or maybe I listened to one of uh, one of your gatherings online and you were talking, we were talking about how tap dancers didn't or hardly ever wore tap shoes when they were on film performing. The tap sounds were, were dubbed in later, either by them or by other people. And isn't it true that this uh, man you're talking about dubbed in some of Donald O'Connor's taps? You have a great memory. Yeah, we did talk about that. And it is true. Uh, now, first, people might be interested in why the tap sounds were put in afterwards, because sometimes when you say they were dubbed, people have an adverse reaction. That, oh, they were dubbed. Why were they dubbed? Well, it just had to happen for the process of filmmaking, because when you, if you just visualize a dance number, you'll see that there's close-ups, there's far-away shots, so you can't equalize the sound in that setting, get it just right. So they discovered that that the three methods of recording taps, one was pre-recording them, and then the dancer had to match them on set, which everybody agreed very quickly was just impossible to do. The next one was live, which meant you could only really have one spot, so the boom was just held and there could just be one camera shot. Then the third one was putting him in after. And that worked out the best for everybody concerned. It's hard, it was hard work to do it, but they did it. So the dancer would be filmed to a playback of the orchestra playing back and they would tap. So they didn't have to wear tap shoes, which was really nice because anybody who's ever slipped on a pair of tap shoes knows that's the imperative word, slip. It's so easy to slip <laughs> in tap shoes. And especially they had those shiny, shiny floors in the movies, those beautiful polished up floors. So it's nice to be slip and slide. So, <laughs> oh, I remember how fun those were. And so they would do, dub them in later. And with, in Donald O'Connor's case, and I'm sure he could have done it, but he was so busy. He was making one film after another in the, those days. So this is, the days we're talking about is pre-Singing in the Rain. This would be the 40s when he was in the Jive and Jackson Jills and that those teenage movies and some other things. So it was just, he'd already be working on another movie by the time it came to lay down those taps. So Louis would do it. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure as you know, much the same is done with movie dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, location, especially location shooting, there's traffic noise and airplanes going over. Yeah. and. It's just, and you have to hide the microphone and get it, make sure it's off screen and everything. So they dub in a whole lot of dialogue and sound effects yeah. uh, later. So it's a really constructed thing versus sim a simple recorded uh, performance. Right. It's hard. It was hard work. I had, one of my friends uh, did some dubbing for, uh, for, she actually dubbed for Ginger Rogers once, which was interesting because when they asked her to dub it, she said, I've already seen the movie. It's already out. What do you need me for? And they said, well, this is the German language version. And there's one scene where she's talking and tapping at the same time. If, if anybody's seen the major and the minor, it's a scene in that one where, and where she, there is no music. There wasn't, it's just her talking and tapping. So now they're putting in the German. And so Miriam had to match that. And she said, it's really tricky because they would, they'd play the film for you on a screen. You'd have a headset on and then there'd be a wood floor and they'd give you a click track, you know, just a dink, dink, dink think and then they'd play a certain number of bars you know maybe 10 seconds or 20 seconds and you would match the taps and then they would do the same thing for the next part next part next part yeah she said it was hard 
She even dubbed <laughs> this Miriam Nelson, if I didn't say so already, and she even dubbed Jerry Lewis. And she said, that was the hardest one because he just jumped around. <laughs> Let's get back to Shirley Temple. Sure. She was an inspiration to you. She was an inspiration to me. She was beloved mm-hmm. by people the world over. Uh, of course, later she got out of show business and went on to many other activities. Yeah. Ambassador to Ghana, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point, and this is a good lead into your book, you'd been teaching tap and working with various other tap professionals. And at some point, how did you get the idea of writing a book about the history of tap? Oh, right. Okay, that's, that's a good question because... It, I'm not a writer, so why did I write a book? It was the scariest thing I've ever done, I think. What happened was the teacher I was talking about a moment ago, Louis Dupron, got ill and died. And I was driving from L.A. to San Francisco, and this thought was just overwhelming me that his whole life story was just going to disappear now because he was a behind-the-scenes guy. He wasn't uh, on in the front on camera much and I thought, gosh, all that interesting life, that great legacy is going to be gone. And, and then I started realizing this was going to happen with many, many, many of these tap artists whom I had now come to know through some of the tap festivals who had never had big screen careers. They were on Broadway or in nightclubs, that type of thing. And I thought, gosh, somebody should really write their stories. <laughs> and that's that same thing that happens when you say somebody should do no gonna be me so I tried to find a collaborator at first because I'm not a, I'm definitely not a writer I didn't consider myself one at that point and I I finally realized I knew how I wanted to do it I had the vision I was just gonna proceed and I got really lucky because I had some friends in San Francisco who had really good connections like Gerald Nachman who wrote for the entertainment section of the the San Francisco Chronicle he was a friend of mine and he gave me the phone number of his agent his literary agent and so I put together a book proposal and sent it to her and and she ended up liking it and getting a contract for me with a publisher and so it just it, I was just super lucky uh, on that that's not an easy thing to do to get a publisher for a tap dance book yeah and so but my vision was to interview these people who had had their careers in the first half of the 20th century that's what I wanted to focus on because that's the era I'm really intrigued by because that's that's all of that real early days of tap up to the golden era of tap and 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 I thought I would enjoy that I've always loved hearing the stories from those people and I knew a couple but not many so so my idea was to interview them one by one by one and then edit out my questions so it's just like you're sitting there listening to them tell you your story which is the best it's so great and, and then I would, for each of chapter, I would put in a contextual preface. So if they talked about vaudeville, then I would say what vaudeville was so the reader could follow along their stories. And it just came out great. It was exactly what I wanted. I'm really pleased I did it. It was three years of my life. And uh, I'm, I got to meet so many wonderful people. And what's great is a lot of them became friends, like the Nicholas Brothers and Gene Nelson. Um, Dorothy Toy and Paul Wing they became real bona fide friends that hang out let's hang out let's go for a meal let's let's just spend time together friends let's tap dance so on the strength of the fact that you had a book deal and that you knew about tap but you weren't 
a big name. You probably had to introduce yourself. Was there anyone who blew you off or? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, the interesting thing was that I was completely unknown. Nobody knew who I was, and I, there, why would they? You know, I was just a tap dancer. I was a performer in San Francisco, but didn't have any international or national notoriety. So it was what I, I was very calculating. So I thought, let me get a couple really big names inter interviews first. And so I got Fayard Nicholas of the Nicholas Brothers and Leonard Reed, who was out here in California. He lived to be 97 and a half. He was the most amazing guy and had an absolute complete memory of his life he was what do they call that one absolute recall like he could remember i think it's called absolute recall so anyway so i i was able to interview fair nicholas and leonard reed leonard reed was one of the creators of the shim sham in 1927 with his then dance partner willie bryant so these two i knew these two if i could get these two they would be and what i had to do is i actually had to practice saying the sentence Hi, my name is Rusty Frank, and I'm writing a book on the history of tap. And I already have Leonard Reed and Fair Nicholas in it, and I'd like to include you. And I practiced saying that because what I really had to practice saying was, I'm writing a book. <laughs> I had to practice that because, again, I, I know I've said it twice, and I'll say it the third time. I'm, I didn't consider myself a writer. I wasn't a writer. I, writing came very hard to me, and so. Um, it was a scary, that idea of putting myself forth that way, but uh, I just practiced that sentence. And then because I had those two good chapters, that's how I got the book deal. And then because I had those two, two people, those two artists, it opened the door and I just kept going for, it sounds very calculating, which is the word I use, but I feel that if you wanna get something done, you've gotta be pragmatic about it. So I thought, well, I've gotta get some big names and then I can get everybody I want. Um, because first of all, the publisher is going to want to have big names. Of course, they would want that. They would want the Ann Miller and Shirley Temple and Gene Nelson. They want those big names. But then that will give me the opportunity to get some of the names that I wanted in there, like Toy and Wing and um, the ones that the mainstream person wouldn't have heard of but had these incredible careers that they would love to read about. So... So that's how it happened. Now, Shirley Temple was really hard to get, and I had every, I just knew I had to get her, but she was really difficult to get because for her, that period of her life was over. She didn't want to talk about it anymore. And she was just on her way to become ambassador to Czechoslovakia, then Czechoslovakia. Um, and so I would just, I don't want to go into the whole story, but I got this little tiny window, and it's a funny thing too because when she f called me and said I can do the interview right now for what is it like 15 minutes or a half whatever it was, I had 103 fever with the flu, and I said I had the wherewithal to say may I call you back so I can set up my recording equipment, and guess who I called at that point? I called up Tom Lehrer and said Tom. Shirley Temple just called me and said, she'll do the interview right now. And although I've been a fan of her my whole life, I have 103 fever just, and I just took some coding and I can't even think of any question. And so he gave, it was so, he gave me a whole list of questions to ask her. It was, it was so amazing that, that, not amazing, it was just so ironic that the, I finally get to interview and I'm hopped up on coding, you know, with I can't even, just this big blurry, but I, I've never gone back and listened to that interview. It'd really be interesting to do it just to see if I sound anywhere, but 103 fever and 
but it, that I had the wherewithal to ask to call her back and then to call Tom. One of the things she really focused on was working with Bill Robinson, which was really great. That was great to hear about that and and because that, that was a unique relationship and, and more so considering the time mm-hmm. period that we're talking about. So And they were so close, really, really close friends. They made four movies together. And mm-hmm. it, if, if the listener doesn't know why it's so important is that she... These were from, I think, 1935 to 1938. I think I've got the, maybe earlier, but 35 to 38. And he was black and she's white and they held hands in these movies. And I know there was some other, there was some stigma to it that he was always playing a a servant role. And yet looking at it now, we just see how important that was for people to see these two together in a loving friendship. And that most often in those movies, he was watching out for her. And you could just really read that, their friendship. So she talked about that. It was really nice. And I assume that even though dancers in movies are supposed to be smiling and acting like they're having a ball, I think she was. Oh, yeah. They definitely had a great time together. And she, yeah, I can say with certainty that's how she felt when she danced with him. Tell me some other things about the conversation, about uh, either personality or approach or point of view or, or from your point of view, trying to get the information you wanted. It was, it was really interesting because I had always related to her as this musical child star. And now I'm talking with an adult who, and, and she was really a force to be reckoned with. She was very... Um, there, there was something about her that was just very direct. It, it was, it, it was certainly not the person you thought you were going to be talking to. This was she had become an adult person who was in the diplomatic corps. So you're not talking. Let's talk about the old days and tap dancing. You know, no, this was not really high on her agenda. And it was, I was just super lucky that she she agreed to do the interview. So, but I remember that. I remember kind of having to hold back and not be my normal enthusiastic gushing self. I just had lunch with you at a restaurant and you are gushing happiness and positivity and enthusiasm and and complimenting people and you're just a ray of sunshine. So to tamp that down for Shirley Temple is kind of funny. (laughs) I know. Yeah, it was a little bit. Yeah, that is so true. And every now and then you have to do that in life. You have to sort of suppress who you naturally would be just to accommodate the person and not freak them out, I guess. And again, being very sick and being on coding, <laughs> that that certainly. But it, I just, re, yeah, it was, I'm not quite sure how to put it in words, but it was, of course, all those years being such a super fan, it was different than I expected it. But I'm really, um, it was interesting and it was short and sweet because she was packing and she, she, literally she was packing to go to Czechoslovakia. like that week so she didn't have time for this and so I was lucky that it happened I I, I mentioned to you earlier that I tried to get an interview with her when I started my podcast in 2008 Mm -hmm. but by that time uh, she was obviously quite older and I read that she didn't really answer correspondence because she learned that people would just sell the, her signature on eBay and it wasn't really yeah. a, a genuine, as genuine a transaction as she wanted. Yeah. Um, 
but I'm so glad that you got to her. This might be a good time to tell us what the title of your book is and who the publisher was. And good news is it's still in print. So it's been in print since 1990. That's 31 years. And that's pretty pretty terrific. They call it an evergreen. And I, I hope it continues to be an evergreen because uh, that means that there's still tap dancers and people who are interested in the history of tap and all those people. So the book is called TAP, all capital letters with an exclamation point, TAP, The Greatest Tap Dance Stars and Their Stories, 1900 to 1955. And the publisher originally was William Morrow, and now it is DeCapo Press, D-A-C-A-P-O, DeCapo. That was my goal, was that these people would be remembered. So if it's not in print, then they're, then that defeats the goal that I had. So there's, it's still in print. It's, it's a, and what's really nice is that there was a first edition, which was a hardcover, and it's beautiful. And then there's a second edition, which is softcover. And in the softcover edition, I was able to include the chapter of Toy and Wing. And to me, that was really a, a lucky thing to have happen because I, I didn't know about them when I started the book. So when I did the hardcover edition, I found out about them too late. They are from San Francisco. Well, they perform, I shouldn't say they're from San Francisco. He, Paul Wing was from San Francisco. Dorothy Toy was from LA and they teamed up and they were known as Toy and Wing, the Chinese Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers during the 1930s and 40s. And she was actually Japanese American. He was Chinese American. And they teamed up, and they were just a fantastic team. They tap danced, they did ballroom, and their story is absolutely fascinating because they were trying to perform in a white world that didn't understand that there could be such a thing as Chinese not coming out in Chinese robes, you know. But they just loved they loved tap dancing and tapped to the to their dying days. And she lived to be, I think, a hundred and one. I know she made it past her 100th birthday. And Paul was just so, Paul Wing taught me how to bow. Because he got mad at me because I would, he would come watch me perform or we'd be in the same show. And I would bow once and run off stage. Just a quick bow and run off stage. He says, no, no, no. He said, Rusty, you must come to the center and bow. And then you walk to one side and you bow again. And then you walk to the other side of the stage and you bow again. And then you come back to the center and then you can leave. And so that doing that was so terrifying for me that I used to say his name, Paul Wing, Paul Wing, <laughs> Paul Wing, Paul Wing, and then run off stage. <laughs> so, but I understood what he, he was saying that the audience, you've just, you've just performed for them. They want to thank you. So they, they want to express themselves at this point. You have to let them. <laughs> so. Well, and it's also nice for you to get a little more time accepting that, that yeah, approval. Yeah, I, I, you should you see my cheeks blushing at that point. But yeah, they, and their story is just so, so great, how they teamed up and the trials and tribulations they had as, as Asian-American performers and how they, they had to flee California during World War II because of, even though she was going by Dorothy Toy, she, she went by a Chinese name, they still got ratted out that she was Japanese American and she would have been sent to an internment camp during World War II. So they had to flee California. And then, and then pretty much they had to stop performing because people at that point were so racist against any Asian face, even though you know, we were allies with China and stuff. So it was just impossible. And he got drafted and was overseas in Europe fighting. And so, yeah, tough story. But then they 
came back and had a big big career and she's very well known in the Bay Area teaching she was until really really the end of her life teaching young people from the Chinese American community how to tap dance she wanted them to know how to dance she was so great I love them so much ah. So when, when the first, let's say, when the first uh, edition of the book was done, I assume the publisher or you sent copies to everyone you had interviewed. Did you get any interesting feedback? Well, my favorite one was from Frances Neely, who had been a chorus girl. And yes, I did. I sent them all a thank you letter, and I sent them each a copy of the, the hardcover edition. And she wrote me this book, this note on a card that says, thank you for validating my life. <laughs> And that was it for me. That was, I was so happy. I still cry when I think of that note. It was so beautiful. In being a chorus girl, that was not the top, right? She was not the star. And so there was always sort of a, not a, kind of this stigma. Not only was she a tap dancer, but she was in the chorus. So never made it. And tap for a while had gone really out of fashion in the 60s and 70s. It was just not hip to tell anybody you did it. And so, she always loved it, and she couldn't understand why people looked down on it. And uh, there was just so much, a lot to her story. She was very light-skinned, African-American. She was from the Bay Area, but she got, she went to New York and found it was, like, where do you fit in if you're light-skinned, dark-skinned, medium-skinned, all this, trying to get a job. And one day, she told me this story once she was sunbathing, and somebody said, you better get out of there, you'll turn too dark for the job you have right now. <laughs> You know, sometimes people don't think we've made progress. Folks, we've made progress. I'll tell you that the, the things I learned from interviewing all these people, we've made pro- We've still got a long way to go, but we've made a lot of progress. Yeah, and I think um, Leonard Reed was really happy. He, he was the one, again, who, with his partner, Willie Bryant, created the Shim Sham, which is called the National Anthem of Tap. And he, he was, uh, he, I found out later, I didn't really know this, but I found out later that he was really grateful. He felt that I had put the spotlight on him that he had created it because it had gone out of knowledge that he had created the dance. And so he was really grateful that I had done that and was really proud to be in the book. I think everybody was in the book was, but liked the company they were keeping in that book. It was a nice spectrum of, of artists. I tried to cover the gamut of styles of tap and the types of people who were doing it. So I had Peg Leg Bates, he was a one-legged, one leg and one peg, and and he was the he had a, a resort in the Catskills for blacks because they there was segregation and they couldn't go to the other Catskill resorts so like the Jews couldn't so the Jews had their own and the black so he was just an entrepreneur and really interesting guy as in addition to being a fantastic tap dancer so all these I, tap dancers who roller skated and skipped rope and did acrobatic tap dancing and and then men women black white asian kids grown-ups i just tried to get everything i tried to really cover and where they performed vaudeville broadway nightclubs movies so you learn everything about kind of this cultural american art form by reading their stories tap really is an american art form i believe it is yes yes i believe that it's it's so American because it's the it's the meeting and meshing of all these different cultural dances. So you have the the black music and dance that came from Africa, and then you have the Irish and Scottish that 
came from those countries and they all met and saw each other's dances and it they were living near each other in New York in the Five Points District and stealing steps and creating new steps. I was saying it's kind of like you've got this experiment going with the vial and you pour all these different liquids in and it blows up into this new art form called tap dancing. So I've always loved that about it. I've always loved that it's been, um, goes across all these different different backgrounds of people. I think it's a beautiful thing. And I've always, I've always found it very kind of ahead of the game in America as far as integration and I guess integration might not be the right word, but there were that tap dancers always looked at another person as just a person and do you like tap or not? Do you want to tap dance or not? Not like the color of your skin or your religion or anything. And they all talked about that over and over again. Yeah. Uh, did you hear back from Shirley? No, I never did. No, I never heard back from her. I don't know. It's most For the most part, I think people have been very happy with the book. Everybody's that who uses it now for their classes, teachers, and, and students are really grateful to have the, the, the stories from the people themselves. They're getting to hear it through the voice of the, the dancer. One of the great things about doing the interviews with the, with the people in my book, as I mentioned, was I got to know them, but I also got to tap dance with many of them in shows. I produced a show in the, in the Bay Area called Jazz Tap, and I got to hire the Nicholas Brothers which was, uh, it's still, I can't believe it. Sometimes I say that out loud and think, ah, I hired the, the Nicholas brothers. They were friends, they were friends. And so I got this show and I was able to book them. And so that meant I got to perform on stage with them every night, doing the good old shim sham at the end. And I used to stand right behind them, in between them, because I wanted to try to get whatever I could from their style. Yeah, so that was great. Getting to work with the Nicholas Brothers was just gorgeous. And then I ended up tap, tap dancing a lot with Gene Nelson. And Gene Nelson, if you've seen the movie Oklahoma, he played Will Parker. So he was the one who sang that song, Everything's Up to Date in Kansas City, and then does the big tap number with the Cowboys. Um, he was a great tap dancer who came in just at the tail end of the movie musical. So although his numbers are sensational in these movies they're kind of buried in B movies but if you go onto YouTube and just type in Gene Nelson dancer you'll have a happy rabbit hole of hours of entertainment so I ended up tap dancing with him for God, like a year I think and that was he just wanted to start working out again and create stuff so it was just I mean to get to tap with these people I remember, I remember one day we were in the studio tapping and I said, excuse me for a minute. And I left the room and I just wanted to, I had this thing, I wanted to run out to the street and scream, I'm tap dancing with Gene Nelson, everybody. It was, it just was boggling to me. Yeah. And here's a, this is one of my favorite memories of the book, actually. You mentioned before that none of these people knew who I was. How did I get in their doors? And I, I, and I said that I, I told the publisher, to get the publisher I said a certain thing, but to them I said, my name is Rusty Frank, I'm writing a book on the history of TAP, and I'm a student of Louis de Prons. And then I was saying, I also have to pay Nicholas, and I, as I started adding more people you know, to lure them in to be in with this prestigious group. But that Louis de Pron thing was really, that was a door opener for a lot of them. They all knew who he was, he was a dancer's dancer. And so when I, I interviewed Gene Nelson, 
And it was a really good interview, just real solid. He was very forthcoming, really nice guy. Uh, and at the end of the interview, I said, would you mind, I have a videotape here. Notice I said videotape, this was a while ago. So it would have been around 88. So I said, of me and my two dance partners. And one of my dance partners is dying now of AIDS. And I know it would mean a lot to him because you are his hero. You are his idol. If I could show you this clip of us so you could see him and I could then tell him that you got to see him. And so I showed him as just one number of us. It was a real good number from a TV show we were on in San Francisco. And it was real good. And I could see he was really enjoying it and everything. And I was like, yes, I can go back and tell Rodney that he, but at the end of the number, he turns to me and he said, why didn't you tell me you could tap dance? You know, first of all, I had told him, but what I understood what that meant. And then he wrote in, I brought a book around with me that he, and it said something, where were you when I needed you? It was, uh, that was a great, great encounter. And then that's when he told me he was tapping again and would I like to come in and join him. And he had some, some other people he was tapping with. So it was just a couple of us. Anyway, that was a great story. Why didn't you tell me you could tap dance? And just the way he said it, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he gave me some of the best advice that I could ever give to anybody else. And that is onward and upward and don't look back. I think I've had a very nice, steady career that never was meteor. What's that word? Meteor. Meteor. Mediocre. No, not mediocre. The meteoric. Meteoric. <laughs> Neither mediocre or meteoric has been my. Everything has just been nice and steady. I've worked real hard. I've done. I was with a, the San Francisco Tap Troupe. I performed then with some some dancers I really really wanted to work with in San Francisco, Wayne Doba and Rodney Price. We became a trio called uh, Six Feet, a Tap Trio. And then Patty Mahar and Walter Freeman. So I had partners, and I loved that. And then at that point, because that was the early 80s, and then I started thinking, God, I'd love to do a musical. And there were lots of musical productions going on in San Francisco at the time, the San Francisco Bay Area. So I ended up doing a bunch of book musicals in which I always played the exact same character, which is the wisecracking best friend of the leading lady. <laughs> and I, I, kept, I kept wondering why I was getting cast that way. And my, I would ask my friends, why am I, I'm always getting the same character, you know, all the funny lines and they go, well, Rusty, <laughs> it's pretty much you, the wisecracking. Yeah. So I did, I, let's see if I can remember them. Babes in Arms, Dames at Sea, 42nd Street, Mac and Mabel. And then with the San Francisco Tap Troupe, we did two original musicals, Sneak Preview and 5678. And then I moved, so I did those, all those shows. And they were the most professional those got as far as the book musicals were Civic Light Opera. But otherwise they were more community theater at that time. Oh, and, I've, and then here I did Stepping Out in Los Angeles. I did a small production of that. And I have to say, I just absolutely love doing musicals. And I, it's sort of my dream is to go back and do a musical where I'm one of the townspeople in, in The Music Man. Just be in the background, swaying from side to side. I would love to do that. Um, but then I, 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 I never. I have to say, I never really taught tap as a business because it was just too hard to make a living doing it. There's not enough people who take class, and you you have to you survive. So I did never do that. And but I then I I got hired to teach tap dancing at a swing dance event, and that's where I discovered swing dancing, especially specifically the Lindy Hop. And I ended up partnering up with a British Lindy Hopper named Simon Selman, and I moved to England for two years. And he and I did a cross trade where I taught him tap and he taught me Lindy Hop. And I ended up doing a 51 city tour of Europe with him with a Glenn Miller 
orchestra where we were the featured dance act on stage and it was fabulous fabulous to dance in front of that big band playing that great book of music it was fantastic and um he had a school and a club and i a swing dance school and a swing dance club and i looked at that and i thought hey i don't want to live in england anymore it's too gloomy here and i miss my sunny california so i came back home and i thought i'd really like to do that that i like that business model and i saw that you could actually make a living doing swing dancing more people take it and do it and it's more social so i came back here and i was able to actually get bit by bit over a period of a year a business off the ground and I I did that right up to the pandemic and on March 11th was the last day 2020 and we're just going to be reopening my school is called Lindy by the Sea because I'm half a mile from the ocean here so Lindy Hop is the the swing dance I teach and that's the it's the old name of the original American swing dance Lindy Hop and so the school's called Lindy by the Sea and then I used to hold a weekly swing dance which we're still not opening yet because of the indoor mask mandate here in Los Angeles. Is it Rusty's Rhythm Club? That's the name Rusty's Rhythm Club which everybody just calls Rusty's which I think it's really cute because when I have to tell people hey tonight at Rusty's we've got (laughs) I got used to thinking of my name as a place and so it's been really lovely to do that business for so many years because I did it for I started in 1998 so it went straight through and it's nice because swing dancing like all dancing it brings something so so joyful to people when you dance you have that dopamine release and the endorphin release and they know that music lives at a different part of the brain so dancing learning how to dance is the number one thing you can do to stave off dementia learning dance not just dancing but learning and so that's it's really nice to do that on a regular basis because you do feel very sharp when you come out of class you just feel much much more alert i can see people they come in they're all glazed over they can barely focus on their part that's something as far away as their dance partner which is like two feet because it's further than their computer screen but then by the end of class you, you just feel the whole room change it's really nice so um it's been, it's been great because the way I teach dance, I think of it as building a community rather than just te- teaching people a step. So bringing joy to people. It's, it's been a nice career. Well, when I was taking uh, your tap dance classes online, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't just tap dance. You also had uh, gatherings online where you look at old movie clips and discuss dancers and, and discuss what we were discussing earlier in this show that the taps were dubbed in later and, and yeah. the tapping sounds. So I, I got that impression that it's a big part of your life, mm-hmm. not just a profession. Right. It, and I like to pass on the legacy, tell the stories of those who came before so people understand they're, they're not just part of a little thing that's happening right now, that they're part of this legacy and who are the people that came, who came before them. That's fun. But the, but the swing dance resurgence, interestingly, now has lasted longer, the resurgence has lasted longer than the original swing era, which always shocks people. They go, oh, because I explained to them, you know, you're part of this resurgence. Mm. But this resurgence now is older. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not it's more years than, not older, but more years. It, with any art form, when you keep doing it, it evolves because there's people doing it and people bring their own stamp to it. So it's always moving forward and changing. As a matter of fact, one of my really dear friends is Jean Bellows, who's 97 right now, and she's... She's a legendary swing dancer from the old movies out here in Hollywood. And she she looks out at the dancers. She's got, they're so much better than we ever were. Mm. They are so much more musical than we ever were. 
And then we all look at her and go, you're crazy. You're the best they come. <laughs> but I see what she means. Her point is taken. Like their dancers now do focus more, like tap dancers as well, focus a lot more on musicality and shading and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, than their forebearers. Well, here's a question I hope you can answer honestly. You enjoy dancing. You love dancing. But when you're in a show, it's a job and, and you, the pressure's on. Do you get as much joy out of the actual performance as you do being a dancer? Every, every dancer I've talked to has a different answer to that question. For me, I have never been able to decide which I enjoy more, rehearsing or performing. There's something so exciting about rehearsing because it, it keeps, it's not in that final state yet and you're just getting it better and better and better and better. But there's something just oh, it's delicious about doing a show in front of an audience and you can just feel it. You can feel that audience. And, and when you do the show, because now it's locked, the material's locked, but you just get better and better. And there's this little, like, oh, you come running off stage, oh, that time I put my pinky in the air and I just could feel it. That was the right gesture. Like it gets really minute, but it's what makes it greater and greater and greater. That's what to me was so intriguing about vaudeville. These vaudevillians would do the same, let's say they had a three minute act, they did that three minute act for 10 years. And that's why it was so great. So I love both. I just love both. And when I'm, I have often felt inside of me that I am most alive when I'm performing. It's a, it's, I'm, I've talked to other performers and they say, yeah, and it makes it hard to just be not on the stage because you don't feel like you're fully alive. Of course, you really have to stay in this heightened state of focus because you do want to make sure your taps are clear and clean and what, what's coming up next. So when you're doing a show and you're tapping a number, let's say it's you know for the number 42nd Street, take that, you the whole number doesn't lay out in your head when you start. You're starting, you go, okay, there's this steps that go into this group of steps that go into this. So you're not thinking of individual taps, but you're thinking of those next phrases. As my, my jazz teacher calls it, you have to think of your gazintas. Your go, what does this go into, yeah. the gazinta? And it's true, it's like while you're doing this, you're thinking, okay, now I'm gonna move stage right as I turn and this, so it's all, you, you're in the, it's probably the most heightened state of focus and awareness that I am in, in my life as a human being. Let me ask you if you've ever danced or, or specifically tap danced in a movie. I, interestingly, for your listeners, perhaps, is the fact that I've never been interested in being in movies or that medium or television because it's so boring because you have to wait for so long to be called to do your little bit and you're freezing cold by that time sitting on a damp, cold soundstage. By the time you call, they call you up to do your thing, you got to get yourself all revved up and then they film and then you go sit down again for another two hours while they change it. It's just not something... After doing stage, I wasn't interested in that. Now, Fred Astaire was just the opposite because he had performed on stage his whole life starting when he was five. And when he came to Hollywood in like 1933, I think it was, he never wanted to go back to stage mm. work. He loved doing film. He found that fascinating. Well, it's interesting you bring up Fred Astaire now. Yeah. Uh, this far into the the episode. But 
Is he considered a, a top-notch tap dancer? Well, he would in, he would be in my book. Yes, <laughs> not in my book, Mike, because he has already passed away. But um, in my, I just think he's terrific. But it, he he was revolutionary at his time because he brought all these other dance forms into his dancing. So he was not just a tap dancer, but he brought in ballet and jazz movement. So he created this perfect blending of what became his style of dancing unique to him and but he sure lay it down no no question about that clean clear crisp great time great syncopation did his own tap dubbing yes i do <laughs> know that for sure <laughs> well and he's one of tom lehrer's heroes oh, yeah. tom never wanted to meet him some people don't want to meet their heroes because they're afraid that the illusion will be shattered right and I did get to meet him. I went I went to Fred Astaire's house when I was a teenager, when I was 16, and I knocked on his door. And 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 he was so nice. He, he actually did come to the door after somebody else answered, but then he did come to the door just for a moment and was just gracious, kind, just wonderful. Yeah. So, but everything I've read about him, he he has a he had a quirky sense of humor. He was a more of an introvert, very shy around people, and which is which is common with entertainers. Yeah. Like they're totally com- introvert extroverts are totally comfortable being on stage in front of ten thousand people, but then in a group setting they just yeah. And I'm in that group too, introvert extrovert. Um, but yeah, I just can't believe I got to meet him. Get an autograph. I did on my tap shoe. <laughs> <laughs> You came prepared. I actually brought it back to his house later. I was not prepared because it was on a whim. One of my childhood best friends, she and I were driving along on Sunset Boulevard, and there was somebody selling a maps to movie stars home. So we pulled over and got it and said, let's go to Fred Astaire's house, as teenagers do. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you were lucky that that was a legitimate, up-to-date map. Yeah. And if we have a second, I'd love to just say one more thing about meeting Fred Astaire, is that when... When people ask me what I remember about that, because it was such a, sh- a short meeting, he was walking through to meet, he had relatives in the other room. So he happened to be walking down the, the hallway that led to that, that little area where they were. And so when he opened the door, what I remembered was that he did wear that tie that he always wore, a necktie as his belt. And I was looking at, I noticed that. But the thing that, and I've spoken about this now, I didn't speak about it for years, that he had this energy that came off him that I thought was going to knock me down. And he was standing there so quietly. And so I had never felt anything like it in my life. But it absolutely flew off and made me, it felt like it was going to push me back. And I never spoke about it because it was so woo-woo, you know. And then years later, we cut to when I was touring with the Glenn Miller Orchestra. It was the Herb, her, actually Glenn Miller's younger brother, Herb Miller. So it was the Herb Miller Orchestra. And we were at a dining stop, so we were all in our little groups. And I happened to overhear one of the musicians say, I worked with Fred Astaire once, and I've never felt it before, and I've never felt it since. And I was like, what? And he said, but he had this energy field coming off of him. I ran over to this guy, and I said, oh, my God. I've never said it out loud to anybody ever, but I had the same exact experience and he said absolutely and he described it specifically and precisely the same way I did so there was yeah there was something it's weird because I can still feel what it felt like and do you have an ex- a scientific <laughs> no. reality-based explanation is it it's because he's Fred Astaire 
<laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've met, I've met so many of the greats, and although they were fantastic, delightful, wonderful people, I never felt that physical thing again. I've never felt it again from anybody. So, woo woo. But it would be interesting to see what caused that, why, why I would feel that, and why why this guy, an English musician, this guy was probably in his seventies at that point when I when I overheard him talking about it. But he he spent a lot of time in England when he and his sister um, were probably in their late teens and early twenties. They they performed in England. That's where they really made it big. They were an overnight sensation in England after performing since they were four and you know, five and six years old. They're slogging through show business through vaudeville and uh, all that. They they got on Broadway, but they were still not a hit. And they went to England in a show, and the English Noel Coward is came backstage in, in America, to, and he said, you guys got to come over here. But he didn't say you guys, I'm sure. <laughs> but he said, you two would be so popular over in England, you must come over. And so they did end up going over there with a show and were really overnight sensations there and went back several times with other shows and spent quite a few years there. So as we wrap up, tell me anything else that comes to mind about your world the world of dance, the world of Hollywood showbiz? Well, I, I don't know if this will answer that question specifically, but something I would like to say is that my whole life I was always concerned with what I would be, what direction I would go, because I was a environmentalist and a human rights activist and a dancer. And I always thought, which one is it going to be? Because I was very involved in both worlds. And finally, what happened was... I became this, what you would think of as a dance teacher, dance producer, dance. But what what it really came out to being was that I was still doing what I wanted to do, which was make the world a better place, and that was through dance. So it's it's if it's something that people need to think about for themselves about what to do with their lives. If if you just keep following that magnet that is you, I guess, and and head in that direction, you can do what you want to be doing. So I wanted to make the world a better place, bring humanity and kindness, and I'm able to do that through the dancing. Though I'm still involved in the things that need to be involved with. The nice thing is that I'm very content with what I've done dancing-wise, and some of the things I've done are not in my future because they just require a different kind of stamina than when that youth has. And But I'm very happy, and it's nice to know I don't have to prove anything anymore. A lot of my contemporaries, we talk about that, that, oh, isn't it nice to watch those kids beating their feet on the floor, and we don't have to do that anymore. You know, like, wreck your, yeah, wreck your feet and break your bones and all that. Yeah, no, it's just nice. So there is that, that's nice to be content with that, that I had a nice career and that I, could, I don't have to prove anything anymore. Lucky me. Well, I hope your luck continues, and 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 next time I talk to you, there'll be a whole other topic to talk about. Well, you know, one of the things I really like doing is interviewing people, and uh, there's a lot of dancers here in L.A. I'd like to interview. I did one, Pete Menefee, who was one of the chimney sweeps in Mary Poppins, yeah, and became a very famous costume designer. So I would love to, there's so many more of his generation of dancers who are now in their early 80s, I would like to do some more interviews. So I'm hoping to, to do to do some of those. I enjoy hearing people's stories. And then what would you do with those interviews? For me, I just want to preserve, again, their legacy. So I don't know if there is a what would I do with them, except 
put them on YouTube. But mm-hmm. they're, they're certainly, it is certainly a really neat idea for a series, but I don't have that whole vision. I would just like to collect the interviews while they're, while they're still, have the memory of what they did and when they did it, with whom they did it, yeah. Well, I hope that my listeners will, will look up Lindy by the Sea. I have a website, RustyFrank.com. That's a good uh, portal to, to get to my information. I have to ask if, if Rusty is a nickname or your given name. It is a nickname, and I chose it myself. It was Harpo Marx's name in the movie Go West. I was a big Marx Brothers fan when I was the same same time with, that I went to Fred Astaire's house. I was a big Marx Brothers fan. <laughs> I liked Harpo the best and loved the Marx Brothers, and there you go. Well, did you ever have any encounters with any of the Marx Brothers? I met Groucho, I think, three times. You know, Only three? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, you grow up in L.A., you tend to bump into people. And, but uh, he, we went to his house on Halloween, and we were, of course, dressed as the Marx Brothers. So we, he came out and greeted us. Oh. Uh, isn't that nice? And then I was in a show about the Marx Brothers. It was the first show I was in called Minnie's Boys. Yes. And he came to see it. And, that, and he came backstage and greeted us. But that was, that was something, man. Standing on that stage, there was one scene where I was just standing during a scene. And I just saw him in that front row thinking, oh my gosh, I've been a fan of the Marx Brothers for so many years and there, I've been watching their movies and now there he is watching us. It was that kind of mind-blowing for my 16-year-old brain. Well, Rusty, thank you so much for taking the afternoon to talk with me and show me your town and reminisce and talk about the future and all that. This has been very nice, Andy. It's so good to see you again after a million years. Well, you've been in my treasure trove since, you know, I first met you 45 years ago, but now you're a little shinier, and, and I, I'm getting to get another impression of your, your treasurosity. Treasurosity, yes. Well, thank you. I'm happy to report that Lindy by the Sea and Rusty's Rhythm Club have indeed reopened, and Rusty is teaching in-person tap and Lindy hop classes again. It was a real treat to see Rusty after 46 years and to get reacquainted with her. She's a lovely, smart, fun person, and I'm very grateful to her for sharing her story here with you and me. Check the program notes for this episode on andystreasuretrove.com to see a picture I took of Rusty tap dancing with Tom Lehrer and her other students in 1976, plus a photo of Rusty and me in front of her house last year when I recorded this interview. You'll also find links to more information about most of the people Rusty mentioned in this episode. Check out everything Rusty is doing at RustyFrank.com and consider buying her book about tap, which has a foreword by Gregory Hines. Even if you're not interested in tap dancing, I know you'll be fascinated and enlightened by the stories inside. Now here's the part of the show I hate at the very end when I beg you to share a link to this episode or a link to Andy'sTreasureDrove.com with your friends on social media. Andy's Treasure Trove is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most other places where people get their podcasts. I'm proud to report that this show is listened to by people in 70 countries around the world so far. But we can do even better than that. I know it. Would you please click a few buttons to help me grow my listenership? I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. All rights reserved, Andy Moore.